Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 11 together. Matthew 11, a passage I believe many of us probably could say the majority even um, are familiar with. And Jesus is um, he's praying for the disciples. He, he's really modeling a prayer, or not modeling, but you know, expressing this prayer in verse 25. And it's always, I think, fascinating when Jesus prayed, and it's a recorded prayer, because we know he's, his focal point, his focus is with the Father. But being a recorded prayer, he's also letting his disciples learn from the relationship he has with the Father. Um, really, the principles of prayer, elements of prayer, if you would. Uh, John 17, a really powerful prayer, really, um, as he prays. Really, that's the Lord's Prayer, you know, the model prayer we have that we often reference as the Lord's Prayer. It's a little different. But anyway, what we have here is he's praying, and then then he, he it seems to, it would appear that he then directs his attention to those who are there with him. And in verse 28, we read, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so with this, it's very interesting because we don't have, at least in Matthew, we don't have any indication of anything particular, not like there had just been a confrontation with the Pharisees or something that would really maybe kind of stir the disciples. I would suggest that there's a good probability, even at least something we want to consider, is just a lot of things had added up. And there was just things in their lives and their own personal lives. If they're, as they're turning to follow Jesus, and even the crowds that were hanging on the, the perimeter, but as, as the disciples and those who are wanting to know more or following him more, they're having to work out just real-life issues, real-life relationship issues, real life kind of like finance issues, raising kid issues, it just everything that we deal with. And they're they're trying to follow him. And and then he gives this invitation really to come closer. You know, um all you who are labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And what we realize as we are born again and we continue on this journey with God as he walks us and leads us along this journey of life. We recognize early, hopefully, at least at some point you will, we start with self-sufficiency because that's the only sufficiency we had. Then when you're born again, your sufficiency is in Christ. And so learning then to rely on him, learning to rest in him, learning to, as he says here, come to me, oh, you are wore out and where you're just wore down. Life is heavy, heavy laden, he says, and I will give you rest. But notice when he says that, he doesn't say, I will just, you know, put you on a a fluffy cloud and you can look down upon life until, you know, you come to heaven. Notice what he says, take my yoke, my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke was really a type of tool. It wasn't you know, I mean, it wasn't a recreational thing, you know. It, it was literally a, a piece of lumber in most times, fashioned. Um, might even have been one of the things that as a carpenter, Jesus learned to make because carpentry in that day wasn't 
is similar to what we have because obviously they used it to carpentry is how they fashioned and formed various implements. Anyway, here's this yoke that would attach two um, oxen together generally. And oftentimes it would be attached to, you know, like in this scenario here that I think he's referencing, a stronger animal would be attached to a weaker one. And the stronger animal would carry it. But the yoke was actually, it was like a balance, if that makes sense. It kept one from pulling ahead. So you see what's happening? And so it's interesting that he used that. Because he, I believe he's telling his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. You're born again. You still got to go do your job. You still got to show up at work. You still got to break up a fight among teenagers. You still got to love your spouse who, who is not yet a believer. And all the different things that are just real world stuff. And so he's teaching them, you know, learn from me. And this is one of the very few self-descriptive statements he makes. Do, do you realize that? Because Jesus doesn't talk about himself that much. But here he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And conveying that, that different type of um, expression, a different way of carrying yourself, a different way of living life, living from the inside out. See, we live observing outside and try to modify to match somebody else who's a good example to us. But when we're born again, we now have this new potential, the, the power of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit and power that raised Jesus from the dead is the, is the God, the Spirit that w- dwells within us, the Holy Spirit. So we've been enabled to love and live at a higher level. But we, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting journey, can we agree, to learn how to do that. It, it's, it's a difficult thing. But he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Uh, some translations speak of meek. Uh, meek would be a word that speaks of uh, strength under control. Um, firm but not overbearing. Kind and caring. And you know, so I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's been my experience in my own life early on as a Christian and even other seasons after, you know, past those early years where I really have wore myself out for the Lord. Just really striving, really doing noble things, good things, but more of my own sufficiency than really relying on the Lord. And if, you're, if you've ever done that, or if you're doing that, this is some of the indications that that type of self-drive, self-sufficiency is present. If you get irritated with other people that are working with you, if you get irritated that other people aren't serving and aren't doing and aren't living as committed of a life as you are, your reference is starting to shift into, look at what I'm doing more than look at what he's done. And so when we, so we start seeing that, and it's, you know, this is... This is stuff that, you know, it's really important to read privately, personally, and before the Lord in an intimate way. Just be transparent. Say, God, why do I, why do those people bug me when they're helping? And, and, and God will very, very lovingly say to you, well, why do you expect so much of them? Why do you expect so much from yourself? Why, take my yoke upon you and learn to serve in my strength is what he's teaching us. So how does he teach us? You know, so he's, he's saying, learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. I want to now go to the left into the Old Testament to Jeremiah. We're going to look at this passage, then we'll pray and uh, settle in at the psalm I had mentioned. But going from 
My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn from me. How do we learn? Well, let's look at Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, and as it seemed good to the potter to make. Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in, are in my hand, O house of Israel. So we have a beautiful image, I believe, even for the church, as far as individually, collectively, as God has called us to be his spokesman, his people to the world. We were fashioned as vessels, our old nature, our, before we are born again. But can he not reform us? Can he not take these vessels and, and then reform them for his purposes? And I have had the, the privilege, I, the joy of, of working in pottery. When I was in high school, um, I got to, to work on a potter's wheel. And, you know, I just took it because it was an elective which basically means I didn't have to take a real class. I could just goof around and take that. It, it sidebar, I ended up spending 20 years in the trucking industry doing wreck repair and paint work. And, and even seeing how God had my hand on my life when I was a goofball. And what I mean is I took as electives my junior year in high school, commercial art and design and pottery. And then I end up going striping trucks and working with Bondo. <laughs> I just laugh. I look back on that after all those years. It's like that was like my tech school, you know, when I was in high school. But the point being, you know, having being able to form and shape and knowing, learning how to to center on the wheel, get it in position. You know, water on your hands so you don't distort it. Knowing how to form and shape, and you know, try to make what you're making. When I read this passage, it just reminds me how God, you know, he puts pressure on us. He allows pressure from the world to form and shape us. And if that clay had feelings, it would be moaning like, ow, knock it off. And then he would stop the wheel and he would get a little pick or some sharp object and he would pull that piece of, of hard clay out of the beginning point of this center, is is he starting to form the cylinder? And You see what I'm saying? So this is an image, something he's conveying to us. That there's times he stops and he takes away that hard spot, whether it's in the heart or the head, and then he reforms and reshapes, and he says, can I not do that with you, Israel? We know at the time of Jeremiah, Israel, they they were really hard-hearted, real stubborn. But you and I, we also want to realize we could be that way too, but let him form us as he sees fit that we would learn from him because his ways are gentle. He's meek and he's lowly. So I guess what I'm saying is, is we're going to pray now. His way doesn't always seem like the, the way we'd prefer, but his ways are perfect. And as he's forming us and shaping us, and, and, and he, we're going to see from the psalm, uh, he kind of takes us through areas and allows things to happen in our lives that will never be reconciled in your, nation, or your natural rationale, your logic. You, you won't say, well, well, someday I'll know why. No, you probably won't ever know why. Because when you depart from this life, you won't look back at that season and go, well, why'd that season happen? Because I don't believe you'll remember that season. 
Because the Bible says there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more crying in heaven. So I'm not going to be crying about that thing that happened back then. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we would approach this text for tonight, your word, we approach it with great anticipation, with great reverence, with um, really a healthy expectation because you are faithful. It's your desire that your children would know your word, that we'd be strengthened by your presence, that we, God, would be formed and shaped by you according to your word, that we'd be transformed according to the renewing of our minds, that we would be taught your word more than just intellectually grasping it, but, Lord, you would form and shape our hearts to contain it and to receive it, that it would even be part of us and flow forth from us, Lord Jesus. Teach us your word tonight. Prepare us not only for what you would say, but teach us how to live it as we finish up the night and continue through this day or week or whatever time we have left, Lord. We praise you. Teach us, God. Thank you. In your name. Amen. All right. Well, I want to go let's join together in Psalm 27. Psalm 27. It's in a, de- a declaration of faith. It's from a man who we learned so much from, one of what we would call the pillars of the Old Testament. Um, a man, quite honestly, probably elevated in, in uh, Jewish history more than any other, apart from the Lord, uh, the man David. You know, David, a very fascinating human being, a man who does not, doesn't fit well in contemporary personality tests. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he doesn't fit into this category or that category very well. Not only is he a tough soldier, he's an amazing musician. Not only is he a a poet, but he's a leader of complainers. Have you ever read about the men he gathered with in the cave? All all that were distraught, distressed, down on life, and discouraging people. That's a little bit of a paraphrase. They're his band of merry men to, to kind of move forward with. And it's really fascinating how he managed to, even in very tough times, to right himself, if you would, and to direct his attention back to the Lord. David, we know, is, a, is an amazing example of leadership. He's an amazing example of showing us how to stay close to the Lord, how to have a man, how to be a, a person, a man after God's own heart. He's an amazing example of showing us what not to do as well. Agreed? I mean, there's some things he did that he set the bar on stupid really high. He put the rebellion, you know, rod way up there. Not only did he give in to his own temptation, given even into sexual temptation, but in an attempt to cover it up as if God wouldn't know, he had literally had people killed. One specific target, one person, the husband of the woman he committed adultery with, but in that whole cover-up, others died at the same time. And he continued on and seemed to get away with it. It wasn't until God sent another man, Nathan the prophet, to call him out and say, you're the man, that David humbled himself and showed the character that he had. And that is to have him as a man after God's own heart. So quick background. He's the instrument. Think of it this way when we read a Psalm of David or we read the letter to the Colossians as Paul is the instrument. It's the heart of God poured into human vessels and brought forth by their hand. It's not that they are the author. They're the the means by which the message is brought forth. It's reasonable that we would consider the person when we have biblical 
record of who they are, but it's only for our, if you would, our reference to help realize that we're all in the same boat. We're all going through this together. Let's not elevate, but let's not even, not to mean. So verse 1, let's read Psalm 27. Verses, uh, let's just, I want to read the whole psalm and then come back as I, I love to catch this overall if we could and then come back and kind of see the sections, portions, and even per individual scriptures. A psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face... My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, as such and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. All right, let's just check this out as we now have a flyover overview of where we're going to land um, I've shared this before, but years ago I was able to go uh, in the back country of Idaho out of McCall and fly in with a group called the Idaho Friends of Mission Aviation Fellowship. And I was able to ride along, basically, as they do uh, backcountry strip assessment, air, airport airship assessments. So anyway, they, they fly, they make a loop around this airstrip, which is just a dirt road. It just, it just sounds nicer to say airstrip. But anyway, so they make this pass around. They work their way down to make a, you know, three-quarter speed, so to speak, uh, fly by at low, le low elevation. So they're seeing, they're looking at what's there on the ground, and then they'll come around, and then pick, they've, they figured out what direction they're going to need to take off. They land, get a feel for it. We got out of the plane for a little bit, got back in, and took off. And I love that as the picture of reading the Scripture, because you fly over it, you get an overview as we kind of read through and catch the context. As we put our feet on the ground, then we kind of look around and see what else is there. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I, of whom shall I be afraid? As I looked at this and thought about, you know, um, what we're, we're catching, one thing that did stand out, simplicity 
invites consideration. When things are really complex, it's hard to break them down and, and consider what's the, what's, the, what's the main thing. But here, he's just, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And it's easy to kind of go, he, he is my light. Well, what does that convey? And it's a very simple statement. It's something that you see frequently in Scripture. Although there's this amazing complexity of theology and doctrine and all the various things that we would think about in, in trying to relate to the Creator, with roots that go deep, so deep we'll never unearth them. But at the same time, here on the surface, to, to help us ponder and wonder, it's a simple statement like, the Lord is my light. A 40-year-old can, can see this, and you can study the, the Word for 50, 60 years, and you'll still be pondering and thinking, what does that mean? Well, my light, I, we see more clearly, we walk more confidently. His light removes our fears, correct? When, we're, when you're in that setting or situation, literally physically, and you're going through and it's dark, you naturally either try to create light, what's called a flashlight or a headlamp, or a candle, or you proceed extremely cautiously because you're smart. You've stubbed your toe on a bedpost and died. You've done different, you know, you've tumbled over things. And so, you know, I've got to pay attention. How much, how much more when we consider David's life where he dealt with predators when he was a shepherd? He dealt with enemies when he was even um, dealing with King Saul, who was a little bit of a psycho, and trying to kill David all the time. So the darkness is a cover, but it's also a problem. He, he says, you are my light. The Lord is my light. He doesn't say the Lord is a light. He said the Lord is my light. That's so important. He, David understood this. He's getting it. And my salvation. Salvation, we know, as we initially think of it, is that conversion, that point of coming into a relationship. We speak of being saved. But in Scripture, that word's used in many different uh, contexts. It's still conveying the same principle. It speaks of deliverance, of rescue, of safety. And so when he says, the Lord is my salvation, he is the one, the Lord is the one who will deliver me, who will take care of me, who will maybe heal me, who will provide for me. And David, you know, going through so many different things, on the run many times, living almost destitute, if you would, at various times. One point, so like caught up in just a little bit of pity, a little bit of discouragement, He a, a great deal of fear. He's at the enemy's gate, realizing he shouldn't have showed up at Philistine City and starts literally frothing and foaming at the mouth and acting like a crazy man because of what he was going through. Now you just think here, he, these are times when he realizes, God, you are the one I need. You are my rescue, my safety, you know, help given. It literally speaks of you are my welfare. And so the Lord is, think of it this way, the Lord for David. David seeing how his brothers were treated differently by dad because they were older. David seeing how God was faithful in teaching David how to be a good shepherd boy and teaching him how to manage really boring times, but yet also be an alert attendant over the sheep. Because we're told that he conquered various predators. And at the same time, realizing the Lord is with me. He has been, he is, and he will be. Let's consider 
what we can what we see from the New Testament. Hold your place right here in Psalm 27. We'll return. We'll look over and lean over to Romans chapter 8. And think about this. We've started with the, the learn of the ways of the Lord. In other words, Jesus say, you know, learn of me. Take this, this yoke upon you and learn of me. We recognize that the, the, the God forms us and shapes us and can make these vessels according to his design. We're seeing here from this psalm that he is the light, he is the salvation. And, and maybe a, a foundation for that is to understand in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, for I am persuaded. It literally means I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there's that solid, sure statement of God, by God, proven by God. Nothing can separate us. Why would God, just a thought, but why would he make this statement to humanity after he's done so much on the cross because he knows the spiritual battle we'll face. He knows that in our minds there's going to be times like, I don't, I don't know if God loves me. Look at what I'm going through. Does God really love me? Look at this physical situation. Does, does God love me? Look at what happened in my, my, to my marriage. Look what happened to my child. Look at what happened to my finances. And we can get to where these difficult things naturally in human logic causes us to go, really, is this a loving thing? Is this the right thing to do to your kids, God? But you want to realize that those things will soon pass. This life, we're told by a reference in a sense of longevity, in a sense of a, a physical reference, we're told that our lives are merely a vapor. You know, you can do it tomorrow morning. You can check this one. Step outside because it's going to be cool enough. And just, whew, how long did that last? It's visible for a bit, but it's gone. And that's really what it's conveying. So if you think about what we go through now, and it's so hard when you're in the midst of a hardship and difficulty, these words hardly penetrate the cranium. But let's let them go, not so much trying to rearrange logic, but bypass logic and settle on the heart. I know God is good. I know no matter what I'm going through, I am not outside of his love. I have no, no, no death can take me away. No spiritual fight, no spiritual entity, no spiritual being, no principality, we're told there. No angel, nor things present, nor things to come. Anything from above, anything from below. Nothing created shall be able to separate from me, me, you, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And, you know, there are times that you have to recognize where your anchor is at and where your foundation is, because that's what you're going to hold on to. That's how you're going to get a sense of, okay, you know, We'll pray, Lord, heal me of this. Lord, we'll pray, Lord, I guess, man, I gotta have money, man. I gotta pay my, I gotta pay the house payment. I gotta, I'm gonna, I gotta, I don't want to live on the street. God, help me for what I said to my my wife or my husband or my kids when I was so mad and I said those terrible things. God, I can't fix it now. I can't, I can't make it go away. God, I, I need your help. I, I need you to show me how to be more loving. I, I, I'm not gonna let the enemy come in and say that I'm unloved, for I know your word is true. I don't trust myself. I don't trust. I have a, I've said this before, but it's increasing every day. I have an increasing confidence in God 
and a diminishing confidence in Dan. The longer I'm around me, the less confident I have in me. And, and so and I hope it's the same for you because it's, it's a good thing. Because I know where my confidence is, my hope is in the Lord. Let's move back to Psalm 27 and continue through. Who shall I be afraid? The Lord is my strength. That's not making a statement so that I can then not do anything. The Lord is the strength of my life, my anchor in the storm, my stronghold, my refuge, my protection, my safe harbor, my fortress, my defense. And it's essential that this we make this our, our deep-seated, non-negotiable, unchanging foundation for all thoughts and experiences and interactions and actions. Trials, temptations will come, but he is my salvation. He is my strength. When the wicked, verse 2, come against me to eat, and they came, it's past tense there, but he speaks in present tense in a minute. To eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. So, is it possible that a Christian in America, a Christian nation, according to some um, fables, basically, literature, maybe history, is it possible that people could come against you? You know, I've been reading some articles that are very disturbing. You know, um, parents... In a couple of different states, they have a disagreement with their teens. And their teens want to identify as a different gender. And because the parents are trying to lovingly correct their child and help that child live in the truth, because they are not acknowledging that person, that, that teen's self-identification, and they're not using the proper pronouns that that child prefers, the child is removed from the home. The parents are child are charged with child abuse. And I'm thinking, what? Is this like Bulgaria or somewhere? What is this? Is this some Roman, Soviet throw-off? No, this is right here. And this, you think it's going to decrease? Why would you think that? I mean, if something's starting to roll and you say, I think it's going to quit, what force stopped it from rolling? What kept it from moving the direction it was going? The old saying of the snowball rolling downhill, it picks up speed in mass as it goes. And I, and I just think, well, I was just saying that, I, I think we have to be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. We have to navigate life with an awareness. There will be wicked that will come against the very makeup, the very fabric of this, of this nation. The family is the very core of any, of any civil society. When, as so goes the family, so goes the nation. Guarantee it. It's a super simple statement, maybe oversimplified, but you look and study through your history books and it's going to be proven to be true. All these different empires, it's really, we talk about how the government was corrupt or we talk about immorality or different things that happened. But ultimately, it was, it was really when the family was tore apart and mostly when the husband was taken out of his role and didn't fulfill his role, then the society collapses. You're going to face it. There are going to be times when the wicked will come against you. They would just as soon have you removed. Though an army may camp against me, verse 3, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise against me. In this I will be confident. He is my strength and my salvation. I wish it was a, the certainty was attached to brevity. 
In other words, because I'm certain that God has this, and because I'm certain, it'll be quick. <laughs> but you know it, it's not, right? It's not always quick. You, 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 you hold on to this certainty, and you, 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 this is where you stand. But it seems to be like a storm on the ocean. And wave after wave after wave is pummeling against you. And you're like, man. And he, David is saying, though an army would camp against him. It'd be one thing if his enemy was opposed to him on the other side of the valley. But he's speaking of an army that's in position to, to re- annihilate him, to remove him. And so he's, he's kind of that same thing with the storm. And no matter how intense it gets, I'm going to hold on to this. I don't believe he, he had it in an absolute. I, I believe some of the things I referenced in his life helped us see he, he learned this as he went along. He learned to trust God. In this, I will be confident. One thing I have desired, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, to, to behold his beauty, to behold the beauty, the beauty of the Lord, to reside in the temple, the temple of the Lord. Some of you know that song. Those of you who know it, we can, you know, we're in the geriatric division of life, so to speak. So, um, David is making a beautiful declaration here. I just love the time of worship together. I just love when, when God-fearing, God-loving people gather together with all their joys and all their blessings and all their tears and all their heartaches and everything that collectively makes up a gathering. He says, I, I long for that. I desired that one thing I desired that, that from, of the Lord. They said, God, I, I just want to gather. He said, I think I'm pretty confident it was David. I know it's in the Psalms. He said, I would rather be like a spider on the wall in the temple. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. I'd rather be a bird, a swallow that, that's made its nest in the corner outside the building and, and be around all this than do any other thing. And, and it, it's not because it was the, 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 the good coffee and muffins. You know what I'm saying? It, it wasn't those, those physical things exclusively, of course. It, it was the, the reason people gathered. It was that act of worship. It was bringing our our collected combination of dysfunctionality and knowing that God is our sure foundation and allowing him to just really bring us in. And there's nothing that compares to gathering together and worshiping the Lord together. There is nothing. You've got, in most gatherings, you've got uh, a variation of age, a variation of maturity. You've got a variation of, of scars, you know, some people, they come in with a spiritual limp and a little bit of a edge to them. And maybe you think, man, what's their problem? But when you get to know them and, and they trust you and perhaps they give you a glimpse of their life journey, you weep for them. You realize, man, I did not know they went through all that. I didn't know they suffered that loss. And here they're here and here they're declaring the faithfulness of God. They sound grumpy but maybe there's more to life than I can pick up on this outward expression. So David, you know, he's just, I think we can learn so much from this psalm. I'll be confident in this one thing, and then I'll desire this, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Inquire, we get it, to inquire. Inquiring minds want to know is a slogan from somewhere. 
So you, 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 you're, you're trying to find things out. You're trying to figure things out, not just to put your mind at rest, but so your mind doesn't cap what the heart would bring forth. So then you can kind of have a better understanding, I believe, in interaction and, and get together and time is just building relationships and, and learning a term we, we refer to as, you know, warm culture, um, where, you know, there's, there's referred to as warm court culture and cold culture. It, it is cl- similar when you measure from the equator. Going north, it tends to be more cold culture. But interestingly enough, that is not just like temperature stuff. It, it, it's interesting that, have you ever thought about this? The further north you go, it is harder it is to get to know people. And it's real simple. You just, nobody answers the door of the igloo. You know what I'm saying? I mean, with the further north you get, if you're not out in, you get into a warmer culture, it's usually more open, correct? I mean, granted, there's AC in some situations, but the majority of people living within that close framework of the, of the equator, they don't have, they don't have AC. It's just warmer. And, got, and so it's not just the temperature, it's the way they engage. And so when we're gathering and where there's this warmth and we realize that, man, this was, this was just beautiful, I believe that's what David's conveying. There's a warmth. We get to know each other, and we're, our focus is coming together to worship the Lord. So let me move on. I, I don't mean to belabor that too much, but in verse 5, For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. His pavilion, you think of this, this overhead covering. In the secret place of his tabernacle, which is his tent, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. I think you can see, we can agree on what this is conveying. He has put us, he's got his protective presence around us is what's being conveyed. We're on this rock, speaking of the foundation, but also high on a rock above the floods and above the other things. It's speaking of of his love, his provision, his protection. Verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Why was he in the tabernacle according to the flow of the text? Because he needed God to hide him in the pavilion, because his enemies sought to destroy him. He he needed God to place him in this tent, if you want to follow the, the illustration or the the picture. He wanted he needed God to be his his protection. And and so then he says, you know, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. Instead of seeing what he doesn't have because of the enemies against him, he's willing to recognize this great joy that he does have because in the midst of the pressure and all the enemies and all the adversaries, he is now drawn nearer to God. He's closer to God now than maybe he could suggest that he'd been in, in maybe a long season. I think we all can relate to that. Maybe we've even been through many of those things. We see David's confidence in God. We see David's dependence upon God. We see how David continues to go to God. He says in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. I pondered this. I haven't concluded it, so I'm not speaking definitively right now. But it specifically says, My heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. I wonder if his mind said, No, I won't. You ever been there? When you're in your very heart of hearts, like no, I'm, a, I'm just going to stay tight with the Lord. And then the minds, like, you know what? I don't. I'm not now. I got to get a second job or whatever. You know, it kind of just overactive, like cranium. 
And it's clear he's, he's emphasizing, and my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. I will look to you. I will, I will long to know your, your specific will. I will long to know your, your, your provision and, and your wisdom and, and knowing what some of you have went through, even in just dealing with life and, you know, having to deal with health issues and decide what do I do? Do I pursue natural options? Do I, do I pursue these medical options on this side? Do I do something in between? You know, it, it's, it could almost be nerve wracking instead of say, look, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to feel but what you'd have me to do. I will seek your face. Your face I will seek. Now look in verse 9. He says, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. I don't know the timing. We can break it apart and do an estimation of David's life. But I'm pretty confident this came, this psalm is a declaration after he was king, after Saul had tried to kill him, tried to pin him to the wall with the spear, he had seen the spirit of God upon Saul bringing about victory. But he had also visibly, I believe, observed by Saul's mannerisms, he had seen what it was like when the spirit of God departed from Saul. Because in that dispensation, the spirit of God, would, Holy Spirit, would come upon men to equip them for a victory that God would orchestrate and bring about. Think about Samson and how the Spirit of God was upon him. So I mention that because when we read this, we want to, we want to realize what we're told in Hebrews, that, that he will not leave us nor forsake us because his victory was accomplished. Death and sin and the consequences of sin, and he is perfectly victorious, risen not just from the grave, but ascending bodily into heaven, sitting down at the right hand of the Father. So God, the Holy Spirit, does not depart us. David, you see why I'm making this connection? Because David had a a, a life experience where he's like, dude, that Saul creeped me out when God checks out, you know, and and understandably so. And so he's saying, and I think there's a sense also that we maybe in human terms would petition God, "Don't, don't leave me. I've said that. God, don't leave me. I, I, I don't trust me. I don't like what I, I don't like my brilliance because it's really stupid when you turn the lights on. I don't, I don't like what I can talk myself into. I don't, you know, it's just, it's real simple. God, you know, don't leave me. Don't forsake me. When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. I went through that very thing in my own life as a young Christian. My parents were not yet believers. And so I stood on the steps talking to my mom and dad. I wasn't allowed to come into the house that I grew up in. As I'm standing there trying to figure out, why do you not? I don't understand it. I'm not as profane in my language. I'm not as, you know, arrogant in my expression. I don't understand what it is that you don't like about me. I'm in my early 20s. I love my mom and dad. And they're standing there. And my mom, who was the first person I got to to baptize as as a pastor, beautiful story. Anyway, not going to go there. Anyway, my mom says, I don't know, Danny, but when you started going to that church, I knew we lost you. They turned around, walked back into the house, and closed the door. And I'm standing four steps down, looking at the front door that I I went through how many times as a kid. Like, what just happened? 
And I walked down the sidewalk. It's vivid. I got goosebumps telling you guys about it. I walked down the sidewalk. I sit on the street. I look back at the house I grew up in. I look back. I'm trying to figure out what happened here. And I, I just and I didn't know the Bible real well, but I this is what come out of me. God, I'm not turning back. I'm not going to become what other people want me to be, if it means I got to turn away from you because I can't. I don't. I don't understand it. I, I, like I say, I, I hadn't learned how to really thump people with the Bible yet. I, I did go through a season of that, but I just. I, I, I just. It was confusing, and they were confused. Because they've seen good changes, but they didn't want that part of change in their life. They didn't want the whole church scene. They were confused on what a relationship with God was like. They didn't understand you can have a deep relationship with God and not be complicated by what the world describes as the church. So anyway, as you go through that, I'm, I'm just sharing my story. I know some of yours, and you've been in similar situations where you know, you're just like, okay, Lord, you'll take care of me which is so fascinating you did. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. I think that's a great request. Don't get your hopes up. Meaning the smooth path. I believe the smooth path that he takes us on is a narrow path. And I believe a narrow path is hard to follow his footsteps. It's hard to stay close. It's easy to trip and stumble as you go along. But it's still smoother then that broad path that leads the wrong direction is still way better than what we would go out on our own. So teach me your way. Lead me, O oh God. That's the key, learning to let God lead you. Instead of running out ahead and saying, look what I found. This is where we're going. How many of us, all of us, have started following the Lord? We have a sense in the season. We're aware of what he's doing. And then we zip ahead and go to the left and look over here and say, God, look, this is what you're showing me. And he's like, will you, will you come back here? Can I lead you? And so we read into it. We assume because we ran over here that he's going to do this and that's going to happen. And, and I love John Corson years ago gave this analogy. When we do that, God is just, he's walking with us. Just imagine that. And he just sets out his, his uh, beach chair and his umbrella. And he just settles in right there and lets you do everything you think he's leading you to. And then you come back and he's like, oh, yeah. let's just keep going this way, okay? You know, so don't run ahead. Let him lead you. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me as such as breed out violence. More than any other time in, in American history, we are seeing more, um, more lies, more false witnesses, more violence directed at parents and grandparents from children and grandchildren than at any other point in history. And I, I, I know that's a pretty strong statement, but it's not hard to support. We're seeing what we call you know, parents being canceled, grandparents being canceled. We're seeing an aggressive like statement. Uh, I, don't even get into, I don't even get into something I personally have went through. The false witnesses, even false statements written out. It's like, you, and when you go through that, if you have never been through it, keep your eyes on the Lord because you can't defend yourself. In our legal system, it's a mess. It's, it's still probably the best governmental system there is if you could keep the people out of it. But you got to have people in it to be a governmental system. So, but, you know, just knowing, you know, just knowing even now, there's a, there's a lady in our church that just having, what she's had to go through under false accusation is horrific. There's no other way to describe it. Had it not been for the strong support group, the strong people in her life, the people in the church, and her tremendous help from family, even people that didn't connect with her now are there to support her. Because of these accusations and exaggerations and, and these things that are stated. And, and, and the statements are one thing. I can deal with those. 
It's the manipulation by authorities that shouldn't have so much authority that then start working the legal system to promote their private agenda and their own self-made, overinflated, egotistical, you know, power trip. Does that sound, you know, I'm like, I just go, man, I thought that happened other places. No, it happens all over. Guess what? When these adversaries and these false witnesses have risen, such as breathe out violence, I would have lost heart unless I would believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have lost heart in my situation unless I believed that I would see God's hand in my situation. Why does it made, Why is it distinct that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? I know I will see the goodness of the Lord in heaven. Can you agree? Yeah, we will depart. We're looking forward, longing for that day. But we also want to recognize, David said, I know you'll take care of me even today. You will take care of me now in the land of the living, in this season, in this time. I would have lost heart unless I would have, if I didn't have this foundation, this truth, this confidence that the Lord is my strength and my salvation. If I hadn't had that, if he hadn't poured that into me, if he hadn't formed me as a vessel that could contain that and then fill me with that, I would have just lost heart. And literally, what it's, it's one thing to get discouraged, but losing heart, no compulsion, no motivation, no hope for life. Everything's just sunken. But notice what he's saying. I would have unless I'd believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. He wasn't believing, okay, if I do enough things, if I pray the right way, if I give a certain way, if I do a certain thing, if I name it and claim it and blab it and grab it, I'm going to get it. No, what he's just saying, you know, Lord, you're going to take care of me. I have no clue how you're going to do it. I have absolutely no clue. It doesn't even, I don't deserve it. I, I, I know in this world, none of us do, but I know because that's who you are, because that's who you are. And so notice how it ends. It says in verse 14, wait on the Lord. The descriptive truth of this phrase would be wait in faith on the Lord. And that's why you're waiting on the Lord, because you have faith that he's implanted in you, according to, to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, we're each given a measure of faith. So we have this faith within us. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You know, there's an interesting thing that's necessary in our lives, and it's a, I, I describe it this way. A, a lively, a vibrant, a real faith in God has direct portionality or proper portionality of patience and perseverance. Being patient, but persevering through trials, continuing on course, knowing that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And it's like, okay, God, this is all yours. It's in your hands. And so Kim and I were talking earlier today, and she told me that I couldn't teach Psalm 27 because it's her favorite song. And I said, well, are you even going to be in service? <laughs> and it was fun to talk about because it's, it is, there are certain passages of Scripture that are bedrock for us, agreed? They're, they're ones that God has, has formed together and brought together these truths and these promises. So we can just simplify and go, okay, so this is in reality... Jesus said, come to me, all you a labor and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
And, and really, these are the ones I find so often we really learn, we really get a good setting.